It's the final countdown as we end our four-part series on Jehovah's Witnesses, talking very simply about how to give them the gospel. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to encourage Christians to understand why they do what they do and why they believe what they believe so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. In the last episode, we broke down kind of some things to keep in mind when we're sharing the gospel with a Jehovah's Witness, realizing what the conversation is going to end up looking like and hopefully giving people a love and an understanding for what it is that we are asking a Jehovah's Witness to give up if they're going to follow the true Jesus Christ. So in this episode, I want to end it very simply with just kind of some talking points or ways that we can share the gospel with a Jehovah's Witness. And as I shared last time, the two things that a Jehovah's Witness needs to understand is that we are not saved by works and that Jesus Christ is God. And because of those two things, we need Jesus Christ alone to save us. Now again, there's a lot to understand about God and salvation and things like that. But, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, as I've said over and over again, they they flirt so closely to the truth. So they understand the law of God. They understand what sin is. And really, they understand our need to be sinless and blameless before such a holy God. So fortunately, a lot of that groundwork is already covered for us. That doesn't mean it's not important to talk about it, of course, but we don't need to convince them that God is holy and hates sin. A lot of that foundation has been laid for us. Instead, what we need to do is share why, if that is true, that our works can't save us, and why, if that is true, that we need a perfect Savior to save us, and that only God could be that perfect Savior. Not an angel, not a really good person, but only God could be the one to save us. So first, let's talk about why we're not saved by works. Now, again, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that we're saved by Christ, but that we maintain our salvation through works. They may argue that it's not about works that save us because works only demonstrate our faith. But as we discussed in episode two, the reality is that Jehovah's Witnesses, like every other religion out there, is incredibly works-based. They give lip service to the idea of being saved by faith, but ultimately everything that they are taught, everything that they are are grown up and believe is based around you have to perform, you have to behave, you have to do this or else. And so therefore they cannot be saved by faith alone because they have to do works to keep it. So it's about them, their effort, their goodness in earning and maintaining their salvation. But let's remember what Isaiah 64, 6 says. It, it talks about how all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now, this verse, and especially that line, is significantly more intense than we may realize. Because the Hebrew word for filthy isn't about dirt-stained clothes. And if you're at work, if you got kids around, this may be a time to pop in the headphones. Because what this word is actually talking about in the original Hebrew and what the original audience would have understood is that this dirtiness, this filthiness, is talking about menstrual fluids. In other words, blood from a woman's period. And now, that's bad enough, right? Because what that's basically saying is that, hey, when we go before God and say, God, look at all these good deeds I did. We're holding up, you know, filthy menstrual rags in front of a holy God. That's bad enough. But also realize that this was written in the Old Testament time, when the Israelites were specifically told 
to keep away from a woman's blood during her menstrual cycle. And so understanding how impactful this would have been to Israel who heard this and what this is really saying is that our filthy rags or our, our good deeds aren't just like dirty clothes from playing out in the mud. It's literally almost an abomination to a holy God because we are sitting there holding up these these bloody rags dripping on the pure throne of God saying, God, look at all this good stuff I did. Aren't I so impressive? And this verse paints a very painful picture of how disgusting and wretched our good deeds are when they're done under our own power because they are done to serve us, to make us look better or to make us feel better because we are saving ourselves. We are the ones who are so good that we can earn and maintain our salvation. And how Jehovah's Witness has likely spent their entire life trying to prove that they're good enough. They've not only been trying to prove to God that they're good enough, but they've been trying to to project this image to other Jehovah's Witnesses that they are good enough and that they measure up. Meanwhile, other Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to prove that to them as well. And it's this constant thing of everyone trying to, to dress themselves up in such a way to look impressive when ultimately they are rotting because all these good deeds, all these sacrifices they make aren't done out of a love for God, but out of basically a, a need and a pride of, of proving that they are good enough and proving that they are good people. And so understanding that when we're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, we need to, you know, lovingly, but maybe strongly point out that God doesn't demand their works, but their willingness and their humility to, to recognize what their works are and why they need to ask Christ to save them. You know, so, so think about this. Think about James 2.26. It says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, so also faith without works is dead. Now, what's hilarious about this is that Jehovah's Witnesses will actually use uh, James chapter fourteen to tw- uh, James chapter two verses fourteen to twenty six to prove that they have to do works to prove they have faith. And unfortunately, this boils down to a complete misunderstanding of what's actually being said, because what we see here is different from what Jehovah's Witnesses do, because they are putting emphasis on the wrong thing. James here, in no way, is saying have works to prove that you have faith. That's the Jehovah's Witness interpretation. That is a works-based interpretation of this. Instead, what we see here is completely in harmony with what we see throughout the rest of Scripture, and that is that if you have faith, you will naturally show it through your actions. So in other words, faith comes first, works are a natural result. And we can see this reinforced in Matthew 12, 34, which says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, what's in our heart will produce the things that we say. And we see this again in Luke 6, 45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Or we can go with something simple, Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So again, all this reinforces this idea in James that if your heart 
has been changed and transformed. And if you have true faith in Christ, your life will naturally reflect that. It's not about effort on our part to prove to others that we're good enough, but that through the power of the Holy Spirit changing us and and developing that fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5, the things that we say, the things that we do are naturally going to show those things. And we see the importance of faith in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, it just doesn't get more straightforward than this. It's not a result of works. Our faith doesn't come from our works. Our salvation doesn't come from our works. Keeping it or earning it have, has nothing to do with us. It's all about what Jesus Christ did on the cross in not only saving us, but securing us forever. Because, you know, as you know, as we know, if we were capable of losing our salvation, ultimately we would lose it. I think it's John MacArthur who famously has kind of said that. This idea that if keeping our salvation was up to us, there is no possible way that we would maintain it because we cannot outdo our sin. We, we can't do enough good works to make up for the evil ones. It's only Jesus Christ who could pay the penalty for every single one of our sins. But of course, we need to understand why? Why is it that we can't do enough good or any good to save ourselves? Why is it that our good deeds are repulsive to a holy God? Because we would think that, you know, God would want us to do good things, to, to be good people and to be nice and things like this. You know, why is it that us trying to earn our salvation isn't just a bad idea, but something that is, is disgusting to God? Well, in terms of why our good deeds can't save us, we need to Realize Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, which says, As it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So just our our basic foundational idea that, oh, I'm doing good deeds, is inherently flawed. Because God tells us that we don't do good. We can't. We are incapable of doing things that please him. Not because God is, you know, this big grumpy goose who just can't be pleased, but that we as human beings are so entrenched in our sin nature that even the things that we think are good are still sinful because they are done with a prideful arrogance because we are trying to prove ourselves. We are trying to save ourselves. We are saying, hey, God, I am good enough to do what you say only Christ could do on my part. And so we approach God with this transactional idea of if I do this good thing, God will reward me. You know, we see this very clearly in things like the prosperity gospel, but we also see it even in any works-based religion, including the Jehovah's Witnesses, because what it teaches is, God, I will do good and you will forgive me. I will do good and you will remember me in the end. It's transactional. It's saying, I will do this, and God is contractually obligated to hold up his part of the bargain. And I don't think we really want to play that game with a, a good and holy God, because we are incapable of doing enough good to deserve anything we think we do. And so then understanding what things are good and why we do do good deeds, we can see in Galatians 5, to 23, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, and what this is talking about, you know, is that things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control— 
those things aren't a result of us being better people, but us being changed by the Holy Spirit. So those good things that you see in your life today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, have nothing to do with you being a better person, but you being changed by the work of God in your life. And so you can't boast about saving yourself, and ultimately you can't even boast about becoming a better person. It is all about the work of Jesus Christ. And so understanding the reality of what good works are and what good works aren't, in other words, how we completely misunderstand our own good deeds, this is why even among genuine Christians— The idea that we need to work to keep our salvation just makes no sense because nothing we do under our own power and under our own motivations has any merit to God. All we can do is submit to God in humility, and through that, he will demonstrate his goodness and his power and his transforming ways through us. And so when we're talking to Jehovah's Witness, this is a key one, and the conversation can go any number of ways. But we need to focus on this. We need to keep the conversation rooted in this because this is what they really need to hear. They need to know that all this time they spend trying to be good enough. I mean, even the fact that they're in our homes, you know, when they're knocking door to door, they're doing that to maintain their salvation, to prove that they put in the work and that they should be rewarded. You know, that's why they do it. They, they're, at, they're talking to us because they're, they're trying to make a transaction with God. And they need to know that despite the appearance that they put on for us and for other Jehovah's Witnesses, the reality is that we know that they are drowning under the weight of being a person who is completely depraved and sinful and incapable of doing good. And yet here they are trying to work so hard to earn their salvation. And so the main point here when we're talking about works is that The Jehovah's Witness idea of earning and maintaining salvation is impossible, and that is why they feel so exhausted and so overwhelmed and so anxious about putting on a good front is because they are trying to earn salvation through a means that it cannot be earned. Now, again, it's not just enough to understand that they can't save themselves, because if they can't save themselves, how can they be saved? And they need to understand that this comes through Jesus Christ, but they need a, a true understanding of who Christ is, and that is that Jesus Christ is God and not a God. And now there's a number of ways that we can discuss this with them. You know, we talked in the second episode about how we can use kind of Genesis 1-1 to show that it doesn't make sense logically, according to the text, for Jesus Christ to be a created being. But there's some simpler ways that we can go about it. And with these, we can even let the Jehovah's Witnesses use their own translation to prove it. Uh, So one idea of talking to them about how Jesus Christ is God and helping them see logically, you know, not just through, you know, hammering them with Bible verses, which they've been trained to answer and contradict, but making them logically understand why Christ had to be God based on the interpretation of the Bible— Uh, This first one is called Putting Jesus in a Box, and uh, I got this message from a man named Greg Kokel, I think is how you say his last name. Uh, This is probably the most creative way I've seen to demonstrate the Bible's claim about Christ's deity, and it's great because it uses visual aids, you know, so they can see it. It uses tactile components. In other words, they are physically having to touch something and interact with what you're talking about. And it physically involves the Jehovah's Witness, so they're not a passive participant, but they are actively involved in trying to understand what this all means. 
And it makes them have to commit to understanding the idea or understanding why they disagree with it. And so I'll include a link uh, to that gives a much more detailed explanation by Greg Kokel. But here's the quick rundown of it. So we've talked about how Jehovah's Witnesses have a Bible version that has been purposely altered to reinforce their own beliefs. Again, changing wordings and things like that in order to not contradict Jehovah's Witnesses. However, we can actually use their own translation in a way because while they changed a key thing that we would typically use to prove that Jesus is God, they didn't change everything. Uh, so this is in John 1.1 where they talk about how Jesus was a God, not God. And so, you know, that was changed by the New World Translation translators, but in modifying the biblical text, they completely overlooked the implications of the next two verses, which is John chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, because, you know, these implications may not be as apparent. So here are the first three verses of the book of John in the New World Translation. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things came into existence through him. And, and now this is the key one that we're going to focus on when we're talking to them. And apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. So even though these translators tried to remove Christ's deity by changing him to a God, this is a clear teaching in these three verses that everything in the universe apart from God was made through Jesus Christ. Now, again, this may not be obvious how this works or why this disproves their belief on Christ. Because what the Jehovah's Witness would say is, yes, I agree with this. However, Christ was made first and then everything was made through him. But even using the Jehovah's Witness's own translation, we can see that Christ's deity and his, his eternal existence is still present here. So here's how this works. First, you have them read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 like we did, and ask them what it means that not even one thing came into existence. And they'll say something about how God created Christ, and then through Christ, he created everything else. Then, here's where kind of the demonstration comes in. Have them take a piece of paper and draw a large box on that paper. On top of the box, have them write everything that exists. And so what this is going to mean is that this box, in this box, we're going to fill it with every single thing that exists. Now, draw a line down the middle of that box. On the left side, we're going to write all things that never came into being. And on the right side, all things that came into being. In other words, this box holds everything that exists. On the left side, we have everything that was uncreated, everything that has existed forever. We all know who's going to go in that one. On the right side, it is everything that was created. In other words, everything that went from a, a point of not existing to suddenly existing through creation. Now, on the never side, in other words, things that have existed forever, ask them to write down everything that exists but was never created. And obviously, the only thing that they're going to write there is Jehovah. Then on the other side, ask them to write down all created things. Because we could write down every single piece of matter that has been created, or we can just say all things that were created. Easy enough. Now, we have here every single thing in the universe and outside the universe that exists in one of these two boxes. We either have God or we have everything else. Now, hand them something like a quarter, which is what Greg Kokel suggests. Hand them a quarter and say, this quarter represents Jesus. Now put Jesus in the correct category. Now, where this works with John 1, 1 through 3, 
is that the natural response is to put Christ in all created things. However, remember that the verse says that everything was created through Christ. Everything, every single thing was created through Christ. And that's tricky because if Christ is a created thing, then he would have to be created through himself. Now, again, that might be tricky and, and that might be hard to kind of picture and visualize through audio. So like I said, I'll, I'll include the text, uh, a link to Greg Kokel's article about it. I also, as always, have a link to my own article where I explain this. But really think about that. If it's true that all things were created through Christ, then if Christ was a created being, he had to be created through himself, which means that he had to exist before his own existence. And so this is where they should hesitate, because if they put Christ in the category of uncreated things, then that completely blows away everything they believe. But logically, they have to know that Christ can't be part of the created category because, again, he couldn't have been created through himself. Now, with this, there's obviously going to be two arguments. The first is that the text says, apart from Christ means other than Christ. In other words, if we were to use this word in, in just typical English, uh, we might say, um, you know, apart from me, my family, ha- my house has five members in it because I have a wife and four kids. So in other words, what I'm saying is other than me, not counting myself, my house has five human beings living in it. And so what they would say is that what this means is that it's saying that other than Jesus, not even one thing came into existence. But logically, that doesn't make sense. Because if we're going to change it to mean that, you know, Christ is in a different category, what the, what it's saying is that other than Jesus, nothing came into existence. Because again, remember what the text says. It says, apart from Jesus, other than Jesus, not one thing came into existence. So if you're kind of scratching your head, what, what that would effectively mean is that Jesus Christ is the only thing that came into existence existence. And so they can try to, you know, because the knee-jerk reaction will be saying, oh, well, other than Jesus Christ, everything was made through him, through him, you know, that Jesus Christ was created. But no, that's not what the text says. It's saying that either nothing was made other than those things that were made through Jesus Christ, or it means that Jesus is the only created thing. Now, if someone has encountered this argument before, a second argument that they will likely make is that they'll try to use Greek to say that John 1.1's in the beginning could mean in a beginning. And that is kind of beyond the, the scope of this episode, and it's very, very unlikely that that uh, answer will come up in a discussion. Um, but uh, if you're interested in, in kind of a, a more technical understanding of that, uh, I would suggest reading the article by Greg Kokel where he explains it in more details. But... Simply put, the problem with this argument is that it still doesn't answer the fact that John 1.3 is clear that he created all things and that nothing was created without Jesus Christ. Now, that's one way of, of helping them understand why the text demands that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, another way to do it, and this is how I like to do it, is to simply just ask questions. And now I heard uh, these two questions um, through a lecture by Mike Winger when he was uh, teaching on Jehovah's Witnesses. And it may not be as creative as Greg Kokel's, but it's still very clever, and it does something important, which is that it makes Jehovah's Witnesses decide between being consistent with what they've said or ignore the truth to maintain their beliefs. And so this is very simple, because it asks two questions, and then we just read the Bible. 
very straightforward. So question number one, is Jesus equal to Jehovah? Now, of course, they will say no, because there's only one true God, and that is Jehovah. So simple enough. Question number two, then, if Jesus is equal to Jehovah, would that mean that he is God or that he is also Jehovah? Now, they may not be sure how to answer that because it's very obvious this is kind of designed to trap them, but they have to agree that if Jesus is equal to the one true God, that he would also have to be God because the only thing the only thing on God's level is God. And so for Jesus Christ and, you know, by default, the Holy Spirit, for them to be equal to God would make them God themselves. They would have to be the the one of the three persons of the Godhead, as we, with the Trinitarian understanding, would say. But the very simple thing is that I assume that the Jehovah's Witness, if they're being fair and consistent, would say that, yes, if Jesus is equal to Jehovah, he would have to be Jehovah, because there is no one else like Jehovah other than Jehovah. Then, with those questions asked, we take them to John fifteen twenty three in their New World Translation. Now, ideally, we're going to take them to have them read almost the entirety, have them read John 5, verses 1 to 23. But depending on the setting, it's most likely that is not going to work. So uh, if you just want to remind them of what the first 14 verses show, and obviously this would require us to have read this, um, but it talks about how this is when Jesus tells a lame man to pick up his mat and to walk. And as a result, the Jews were angry because he was healing during the Sabbath. And after this, go back and read uh, John 5, verses 15 to 23 in their New World Translation. That is fine. But the thing to kind of uh, zero in on uh, is first in verse 16. It says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things during the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father has kept working until now, and I keep working. This is why the Jews began seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And so there's two important things that we want to focus in on here. First, by saying that God was his father, Christ purposely made himself equal with God. The text very clearly says that this is why the Jews wanted to kill him, not just because he was healing, but that he made himself equal with God. And John here isn't writing what the Jews said because he's not quoting them. Instead, he is explaining to the reader what Christ did that made them so angry. In other words, he's confirming that Christ made himself equal with God. It's not the Jews saying this, but why the Jews wanted to kill him. And so then, uh, reading on into the last verse here, John 5, 23, it says, "...so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. And so here, at the end, Christ adds to his claims to being God by saying that he deserves equal worship as the Father. Again, confirming that he made himself equal with God. And so at this point, uh, there's probably going to be some rabbit trails and attempts to move the conversation. But just, if you use this method, stay firmly planted in the fact that that if Christ is equal with God, then he can only be God. He has to be Jehovah because there is no one like God except for God. Now, by this point, however you have explained sin and works, 
as well as gotten them to understand that Jesus Christ is God. At this point, we need to do the most important thing, which is to share the gospel and tie it all together and explains why it all matters. And now they may be struggling because they, up to this point, have thought they knew who Jesus Christ was. I mean, how can how could they have been wrong? And it may be worthwhile to explain to them that many different religions have a Jesus Christ and that we can only truly know him by how the Bible presents him rather than what men tell us he is. And so you could point to them to Muslims who believe that Jesus was a man and can't save anyone. You could point them to Mormons who believe that he was birthed by God the Father and God's wife and that he lets us become gods. Uh, Christians would say that Christ is God in the flesh and that he is the only way from heaven. And it's not Jesus plus works, but Jesus Christ alone. And that Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was an archangel and his death opened the possibility for us to live good lives and earn our salvation. Now, that's four different versions of Christ, and of course there are many more out there, but there's only one version of Jesus Christ who can truly save us. And so the Jehovah's Witness needs to take time and see what God truly says about which version of Christ is our means of salvation and our only way to the Father. So Romans 8, or Romans 5, 8 through 11, clearly tells us this. It says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. And so, you know, this passage, it keeps pointing to the same thing, that Christ alone is our means to God. We see throughout the Bible that Christ died for us specifically, and that through his death for us, we can be spared from God's wrath against sin, not through our works, but through Jesus Christ alone, and that through Christ, we no longer have to be enemies of God. It's not based on how good we are, but purely through Christ's death and his righteousness that's been applied to us. And so, you know, the reason that we lay kind of a foundation when we're giving the gospel is that, you know, up to this point, they've heard through us talking with them that their good works mean absolutely nothing to God. And if that's true, if they are understanding why their good deeds that are done out of a selfish and even transactional motivation mean nothing to a good and holy God, then it's going to take much more than a powerful angel dying so that we can have salvation. It demands that God himself step down, that he live a perfect life and take the punishment for our sin, exchanging our filthiness for his perfection, taking our sin on himself and giving us his righteousness. And that when we repent of our sin and we ask Christ to save us, we have assurance that we are truly saved. We can do nothing to earn our salvation and we can do nothing to keep that salvation. Because if we could lose our salvation, if it was up to us in our behavior, we absolutely would lose it. And that's really all a Jehovah's Witness needs to hear. They need to know that their good works 
can't save them because their good works are not truly good works by God's standards. They may seem good based on what they've taught or what they believe, but that doesn't mean that God is pleased with their efforts to save themselves. And we've also explained to them how Jesus Christ was truly God, and it is only because he was God that he is able to truly save us. And what that really looks like, it's not enabling us to be good people, but instead it's through repenting of sin and asking him to save us that we get his righteousness applied to us so that God doesn't look at us as criminals who have broken his law, but he, God the Father can look at us in the same way that he looks at his son, and that is that he can see us as though we have never sinned have never broken his law, and therefore don't have any of his wrath, because his wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ, and because of that, there is none left for us. And so with all of that, you know, as I said, maybe that person will get down on their knees and, you know, just beg for God to forgive them, and they will have the light just switched on, but, you know, as I talked about in episode two, one of the reasons that Jehovah's Witnesses go out in pairs is so that we can't tell them the truth. They hold each other accountable. They, they effectively act as eyes and ears of the governing body and make sure that someone stays firm to the Jehovah's Witnesses' beliefs and doesn't get you know, caught up in the lies of the Whore of Babylon as they would see us. So you know, when, when they leave our conversation, when we're not talking to them, when, we, you know, the, when they depart, we want to make sure that we're sending them away with hope. Because, again, we don't want them just to abandon Jehovah's Witnesses. That's not good enough. That's not going to save them. We want them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so through the conversation, again, we're probably not going to see anything visible in, in how their hearts are changing. But our goal is to give them the gospel and let God spend all the time he needs to grow that seed that we've planted and turn it into a realization of their need for a true Savior. So after spending our time just consistently pointing them to their need for Jesus Christ, we want to send them out with the hope that they can truly be saved, that they don't need to rely on their works to save them because their works can't save them. And deep down they know that because they are living as enemies of God trying to do good as sinful and wretched and depraved people who outwardly seem very clean but inwardly are rotting away. You know, these Jehovah's Witnesses, they live lives almost without hope, because they are constantly working to show a perfect life while they're secretly drowning in their sin and in their sorrow and in their frustration. Their salvation, in their eyes, is up to their own goodness, and deep down they know that they're not enough. And so we want to make sure that throughout this whole time we've been speaking to them in love, and we want to send them away knowing that we love them and care about them and want nothing more than for them to truly repent of their sin and become a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. We want them to see the beauty of our Savior, who is God in the flesh, who took our sins upon himself so that we could be forgiven and enjoy God for the rest of eternity. That's our motivation, and that's how we want to send them off, knowing that they don't have to keep trying and faking it, that they can truly have their sins forgiven, and it's not by any effort on their part. And just if we need to, let them know that they can return to us, that we want to keep talking to them, and we, above all else, love them enough to want them to taste the truth of the God that they have spent their whole lives learning about but have never truly known for themselves. So that is going to conclude 
this uh, four-part series on discussing Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, to sum it all up, we've talked about how they answered the five big questions about life. We've looked at everything that they believe and why they believe it and what it is that shapes their worldview. And all of that was discussed and learned about because ultimately we don't want to just have head knowledge or we don't want to have ammunition in order to win a debate against them. But we want to, out of love for them, know more about them so that we can better understand how to give them the gospel in a way that they need to hear it most. So I hope that this series has been valuable to you and useful. I hope that it not only equips you to know how to share the gospel with someone from another religion, but that it encourages you to realize that even though there is a lot to know, and we could spend, you know, years learning about the Jehovah's Witnesses, ultimately we can find encouragement because whatever a person believes, everything always boils down to a simple truth. And that is that we are guilty before a holy God and that nothing we can do can save ourselves. It is only through Jesus Christ, who is God, who came in the flesh, coming to earth, taking the penalty for our sins, and in exchange, giving his righteousness and his perfect life to those who repent and ask him to save them. It is a beautiful thing, and it is a simple thing, and it is exactly what someone living the life of a Jehovah's Witness needs to hear. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Remember that this ministry is supported by listeners. If you would like to support the work that I do, you can visit links down in the show notes to give either a one-time or monthly donation. I hope this episode encourages you to keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.